we don't have to make a lot of ceremony around the database. It's integrated into a total package. And when people are thinking of what they're going to deploy next and quickly, they're thinking, here's all the parts. I can do this today. Or I can finish this project in a couple of weeks, move quickly. And I have all the assurances. I feel very assured that all these things are coming together and they will work for me in the future. And that's really cool to see. And when I see the bigger picture like that from somebody else, it's just eye-opening. Hi, I'm Sam Ramji, and you're listening to Open Source Data. This week, we welcome Patrick McFadden. Patrick started his professional career in the Navy doing digital communication, including moving physical data tapes from sonar arrays to mini computers while on a destroyer in the North Atlantic. He joined the Internet All the Things wave in the 1990s, and he was an Oracle DBA for over 15 years. He ended up as the chief evangelist for Apache Cassandra, and now he is head of developer relations for Datastax. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. That was a nice introduction. It's going to be a nice conversation because we get to talk about our favorite things, uh, data in 2021, which can't help but be a better year than the last one. Uh, but data is getting better all the time. I'm looking forward to asking you a few good questions. You ready? I'm 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 already here. Yeah. I mean, what could be bad about data, right? That's probably the best part of 2020. <laughs> For sure. So my favorite question is, what does open source data mean to you? Open source data, and this is my interpretation. I know there's many, but... I feel that goes into the core of information needs to be free and not free as in free, uh, free as in beer, but free as in freedom. Um, and you're free to do with what you need. So one of the reasons I got into open source databases was because I feel like that is a commodity is an important part of our, the infrastructure of how the world works, making, having closed source just seemed like the antithesis of my philosophical belief knowing that there's a way that open source can make uh, this, you know, data a part of our lives and know that you could trust it and that it's available to anyone. It's pretty critical. I love the freedom part of open source. It's easy to make it a little bit sort of bloodless and clinical and treat it as just, you know, a way of sharing intellectual property, but that focus on the freedom of the user to not be harmed by decisions that the provider might make in future seems incredibly relevant as data becomes the way that we run our companies and and kind of run the world. I started out my database career using Oracle and it was clearly not an open source database, but that had its moments, just like you said, and you get scarred over time with experience and you like, wait a minute, someone made a change that I have no control over and now I'm bearing the consequence of it. Which is which is an interesting reflection on the 2000s, right? Because then you look at what uh, Monty Wadinius and Martin Mikos and the team were doing at MySQL, and they built such an extraordinary following that open source ate data and then reached a billion-dollar valuation. They were acquired by Sun, which was in turn acquired by Oracle. So the value of the data and the need for sort of flexible and free flow of that data got realized in open source actually relatively early on. That was the first real open source database I used too, was MySQL. I didn't need to see the source code all the time, but when there was something really critical, I knew I could go see it. But then there, there was just this psychological safety around that. Kind of looking at where we're going, you mentioned your focus on freedom as a component of open source. It turns out that freedom is 
very valuable, right? It creates a lot more adoption. When I was at Microsoft in the 2000s, we were also looking at acquiring MySQL. And uh, I participated in a, an evaluation exercise with the, the SQL Server team. And we ended up valuing MySQL at about $500, $550 million. And I'm not sure anybody's told the story before, but I was there on the team doing it, uh, working with uh, with Martin. Yeah, this is news to me. <laughs> group. Yeah, so um, we put a value of about $550 million on it, which we understood how to value adoption. But Jonathan at Sun ended up being able to put a billion-dollar valuation on it and the value is defined by the market. Oracle then bought Sun potentially largely for the value of, of MySQL. So all those things have ended up catalyzing the 2010s, which was an explosion of open source data. But I'm really interested in next year, which is kind of the beginning of the, of the 2020s. One of the things that you've been working on a lot is how do you do data on Kubernetes? And in particular, obviously, you know Cassandra real well, what do you think is going to show up in data on Kubernetes in 2021? It's this conjuncture of things are coming together really nicely. And it's this whole concept of stateful workloads on Kubernetes. I think this has been a fairly new focus for the Kubernetes project over the past couple of years. And as infrastructure goes, things, you know, things happen in that time frame. But what's really fascinating to me about this data on Kubernetes is how closely it aligns to what we want Kubernetes to be in the future, which is your complete application plane. You know, it's it, it's not, the control plane is there from beginning to end. And minimizing the amount of toil that it takes to deploy applications. I should not spend as much effort in 2021 as I did in 2001 to deploy an application. And when I look at data on Kubernetes, it's like that big thing. It's, it's exciting because it's like, I feel like that's what I've been hoping for for, most of my career is just, it's not a database. It's how do I work with data? Data is a thing that Kubernetes wasn't really designed for. And uh, I've, I've told this story a few times, so I won't belabor the point here. But, you know, Google's built on incredibly elastic compute environment and an incredibly elastic data environment, all of which works real well together. When Kubernetes was brought to the world by Eric Brewer and Craig McLucky and Joe Bita and others, it focused on taking the compute part built on Borg and turning that into something that the world could use in open source as Kubernetes. But the symmetric component of data never happened. So when you look at that, it's really a stateless environment. So what does it mean for state, right, for data on Kubernetes to kind of come into its own next year? This is very parallel universe kind of argument. I think it's this is also the freeze and freedom. You look at what Kubernetes has already done. It's breaking down barriers on clouds. You don't have to use walled gardens. You can rent your database. You can rent services. You know, there's that freedom. Like if I want to run data services in my own environment, I'm free to do that. If I want to run it in my environment that's utilizing some sort of cloud infrastructure, such as, you know, you know EC2, I can do that. If I just want to rent it, I can do that. The portability is there and freeze and freedom is really critical. And it's, we're back to that again. Now state is still quite difficult, right? Because when we think about stateful sets, there's a set of affordances that statelessness doesn't require. You can spontaneously restart clusters. You know that you can just reboot the containers and you can kind of ripple that across a cluster or a, or a cluster of clusters without really worrying about much, as long as you've got you know sticky sessions, reasonable load balancing. Yet the true state that these things depend on 
the affordance has, has to be a little bit different, right? You don't want to just spontaneously restart a database while it's doing, you know, a backup process or while it's maybe taking care of tombstoning or whatnot. So what are you seeing in the community about the challenges of managing stateful sets or where the specific details of dealing with databases, data stores, data sets in a Kubernetes managed environment showing up? Yeah, let's put on the scuba gear. This is what gets into like the inner workings of Kubernetes. You know, that you mentioned stateful sets and daemon sets and all of the things that go around, like stateful applications require storage. That is the state where state is managed. And up to this point, it's been pretty loose in Kubernetes. And there's been some really significant changes in Kubernetes, probably in the recent years about you know, all right, we want to pin storage to this node. So if you fire up a pod, let's say a Cassandra node has data attached to it, you know, that's pretty critical. That's not a random thing. You can't just mix and match. There's some cool companies doing stuff. My data has open EBS. I see like what some of the cloud companies now are doing around LPVs and local persistent volumes. It's beginning to acknowledge that this problem is first class because Data needs to have that. You can't play fast and loose. And it's opening up a whole nother class of storage. Instead of just a general storage parameter for Kubernetes, we really are defining like a data class of storage. There are vendors and there's open source projects out there that are directly addressing that problem, which I think is a really cool problem to solve. And there's not a lot actually yet, right? So it seems like there's a coming explosion, right? You've got Vitesse, a way of scaling out MySQL, which I think came from the YouTube team originally. You've got things like uh, TIKV from PingCap. Congratulations to PingCap. They just raised about $270 million expanding their TIDB database. There's etcd, of course, at the core of every Kube mm-hmm. uh, cluster. Uh, but when you look at the uh, explosion of different ways to manage data, all the NoSQL, all of the SQL, all the graph databases versus what are the ones that are really Kubernetes native, you see a pretty low ratio. Any thoughts on how that's going to change next year? Do you think that that ratio is going to expand massively or do you think there are some things holding it back? I think it will, but I mean, right now the the ratio is heavily biased towards ingress, you know, throw a rock and you can get 10 great ingress implementations, you know? Sure. Um, But I think that you're going to see it swing back towards that stateful workloads and uh, storage, the data storage itself, like physical storage. I predict that we're going to start seeing some really clever ways of doing storage in Kubernetes that maybe weren't available on a physical box. There are many ways you can hook, you know, you can use SANS, you can use NAS. There's, you know, we've, we've got an established group of ways of connecting storage to a physical server. But I think Kubernetes, and this is where I see a lot of the interesting stuff. And you know, like I mentioned, like OB, EBS is one good, a good example of let's mix and match. Like, okay, how does Kubernetes want to work? It's very, it's a very composable set of tools. And we start layering on things. I think this is where 2021 is going to sh- start showing some real progress there. Well, we'll all start using it is composing the right things. Like I said, a, a class of storage, a class of understanding in Kubernetes that is for data itself. And there's been some interesting acquisitions an acceleration of companies at the end of 2020 in Kubernetes on data. Kasten.io was acquired by Veeam. You've got the Portworks acquisition by Pure Storage. Uh, you've got a Portworks alum, uh, Eric Hahn, who's driving Kubernetes approach to being able to do filers and NAS at NetApp. 
some stuff that I've seen at Dell around, uh, you know, NVMe over fiber. So the, the different ways that you're finding to attach storage to compute is getting really interesting with the standardization of Kubernetes as your compute control plane, then the actual technical ability to get this all targeted at one environment is getting a lot more tractable. The interesting thing about Kubernetes though, too, that you've talked about a lot is wherever you see Kubernetes, you'll find an SRE. Right. And this is kind of a new term, right? The old TLA for people who did operations was DBA, right? So the three letter acronym for operations with database administrator, right? And you're seeing DBAs become SREs, site reliability engineers, which is a role created by Benjamin Trainer at Google. I've got a chance to talk with him when I was working there actually met him in my interview process in 2016. And he said, SRE is what you would get if you asked a software engineer to take accountability for operations. Hmm. In the intervening four years, that's become a huge trend. Everybody's talking about SRE, you talk about SRE. So what do you think is gonna happen in 2021 in terms of the movement between DBAs and SREs? Well, you know, with data comes DBAs, right? But with Kubernetes comes SREs. And I, if we're going to put data on Kubernetes, then I, I think it's pretty logical to see where the DBA role will evolve and we'll see these this migration or this really upskilling of the the folks that are just focused on just making sure the database works, the the what, into this SRE role where they're thinking about the how. How does this data you know, we're, how do we deploy a data service? How does it interact with the rest of the stack? It's really, it's a change in mentality, but it's bringing a lot of the same skill sets with some new definitions. And so what skills are missing in order to bridge someone who's a super capable decades of experience DBA into being a very effective SRE? I think that what's missing, there's probably plenty of skills that a DBA can up level, but thinking about it in terms of like, all right, what what does a Kubernetes deployment need? Well, observability is a key component of that. Oh, well, I know how to monitor my database. Right. But do you know how to trace the calls from your database to your application? Do you see that interaction happening in an observable fashion? Can you deploy the entire stack as a unit instead of just thinking, well, here's your port developers, come and get it. That's really the difference in how, the how. Because when a DBA is like trying to like, thinking terms of how this fits into the larger scheme. I lived as a DBA for a long time. You know, you're like, your job as a DBA is to block developers from doing bad things to your database. Well, that mentality has got to change. Yeah. And there's more about traceability. I love what you're saying about observability. I've heard some incredibly thoughtful and insightful comments from people like Charity Majors at Honeycomb, Liz Fong Jones, who's at Honeycomb now as well, as it turns out traceability, things like Jaeger and other ways to find out what's going on between every element of the distributed system with databases being distributed as well as being elements of the distributed system, observability with insight across all of these different nodes becomes super important. Do you see any technologies that you're excited about or any changes in practice coming in the next year that'll be more popular to make this stuff work better? I think Jaeger is a implementation, but the open tracing spec which is, I think this is where we're all getting to. Tracing is important. Let's turn it into something a little more common. Open tracing, I'm a big fan of it. I hope we can support it more for sure. This is where I see that where databases are going to be a part of Kubernetes is thinking about a, the observability stack is more than just an application. 
and you mentioned charity. Charity and I have had these conversations about how databases have their own world of monitoring and things going on. That has to stop. We can't think of this island of data and then everything else. With open tracing, some of the things that I've saw, like in the Apache Cassandra project, it has hooks built in to the database, et cetera, et cetera, you know, like to, through the driver that have worked with Zipkin. Well, Zipkin's moving to open tracing as well. I see this, this migration of everything going in that direction pretty solidly. And it's going to make those DBAs very welcome into the SRE community as well, because they're going to have a lot of that big knowledge that they can bring with them. You were telling me about a couple of other day-to-day SRE tools that also have a Cassandra backend integration. One was Prometheus and the other one was Loki, which is part of the Grafana stack. You want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. And and Cortex, this is a funny thing where it's like, oh, this is turtles all the way down. But (laughs) Prometheus, of course, is very popular for a monitoring tool. It uses Cortex and is a middleware into database engines. And that can use a lot of different databases, including Cassandra. So in some cases, you may find that you're deploying a database to monitor your database. And that's where I was saying, like the turtles all the way down. I'll just say an AI, and I'm a Lisp person. That's just called recursion. Uh, yeah. I do like the turtle concept, but yes, <laughs> <laughs> a recursion. Yeah, eventually you're going to run out of databases. But I mean, it's what it's fit for purpose. So you may not need a Cassandra database to run your application, but you may need a Cassandra database to monitor it. Making that easy is really important. Loki, which is another one of those abstraction engines for Grafana can use Cassandra as well and other databases. But, you know, using Cassandra as a a backing store for your monitoring all of a sudden turns a lot of people into Cassandra users when they don't even know it. And those people are likely to be SREs. I had an opportunity to talk with a real thoughtful engineering leader and practitioner, Tom Offerman, who you know well Mm -hmm. at New Relic. And I was surprised to find out that despite how strong New Relic's general set of data technologies is, including NRDB, they also use Cassandra within the uh, the set of operations and SRE tools that they've got. Well, it's fit for purpose. And if you're, especially if you're going to deploy into a distributed environment, you want to have something, a database that matches up with it. It has a parity check with, this is a distributed database. This is our distributed environment. One of the reasons I've really been focusing on running Cassandra and Kubernetes and why data in Kubernetes is a big deal is because these are starting to match now even in the observability tier, which I think is really cool. Yeah, it's nice to be able to see that kind of crossover, right? Suggest that you're doing the right thing. So speaking of that, right, as a champion of DBAs and SREs and Cassandra, you have been in the engine room for something called Kate Sandra. Yeah. Would you talk a little <laughs> bit about Cassandra, and then would you talk a little bit about what you're trying to do for the SRE community with that particular distribution and how it's managed. Yeah. So like I'm thinking of engine room like uh, Scotty or engine room like in shoveling coal, probably both. <laughs> like I need a, a little more power. I need more Cassandra. <laughs> yeah, you're a little shy on the lithium crystals, but I'm sure you can make more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Keith Sandra is, I think this is one of those projects that it just became as a, as, as an evolution of a lot of other things that were happening. So this was released a few weeks ago, KubeCon, but it was really built from an effort that was going on around the Cassandra operator in the project. This was a critical first step for running Cassandra and Kubernetes. Well, let me pause, like talk a little bit about what is an operator. Okay. 
an operator is a go between a some sort of running server like a, a like a database and kubernetes so um, this is based on the fact that this thing may not have been built for Kubernetes in the first place, but what an operator does is it acts like a, a, my favorite analogy is a robot, like in your data center. When Kubernetes says, I need more, more power, you know, when the engine when it goes to the engine room, it goes to the operator and the operator knows how to translate it to the thing behind it. So in the case of like Cassandra, where Kubernetes is like, uh-oh, we're missing, you know, we, we don't have enough pods. We're not matching up with the state. We need to add more pods. Instead of just randomly doing that, it tells the operator, and the operator's like, I know what you're saying. Let me do it the correct way that Cassandra will take this. And so it's managing things like stateful workloads on top of the stateful services, like underlying storage. So it's tr making a translation from one place to the other. Right. So that's the operator pattern that was established by Alex Polvey and the team at CoreOS and is obviously now part of part of Red Hat, right? How do you how do you manage effectively foreign infrastructure, things that aren't built Kubernetes native and, and make them work in a Kube environment? There are a lot of operators. Uh, there's Operator Hub that has an operator for about any piece of software you want to run an infrastructure now. What is specific about what you've done with the Cassandra operator and more to make it useful for SREs, right? This idea of automation, you, you talked about robotics in distributed systems, we think a lot about automation. Again, another word that you hear a lot from, from charity and the, uh, the SRE and, and observability community. Oh, first and foremost, every SRE must be infinitely lazy and, but work hard. <laughs> I mean, this is, I think this is any, anybody who's involved in infrastructure knows that you try to automate yourself out of a job to no avail. <laughs> you will always have a job because it, that's how you get scale. But what we've put into the Cassandra operator, what the Cassandra operator has been trying to accomplish is, is taking knowledge about how to scale, you know, scale up, scale down, do things like uh, replacing bad, you know, broken nodes, running maintenance operations, that sort of thing. But also, and this is, it's not just running the system, it's also the monitoring of the system. So being able to pull out metrics and put make them into a presentable way to something like Prometheus so that as you're deploying Cassandra into an environment, you know, like this CAS operator, this is things we're working on. It's how do you make it really useful in a Kubernetes cluster, not just running it, but also monitoring it and maintaining it. So one of the things you talked a bunch about is how Kate Sandra is a distribution of a whole bunch of these technologies, but also of some practices, right, that skilled Cassandra SREs would put into production and automate themselves. So how do you take knowledge, which usually is like institutional experience, it's conversations, it's things you talk about over Slack or IRC, uh, maybe it's in the docs, and how do you automate that so that you can, you know, you can sleep when your infrastructure is trying to scale? First thing that it'll be an, it's an infinite task, right? We will never get to a place where we're code complete, which is great. The thing about a project like Kate Sandra, like the reason I say it's, it's a, a project to gather SRE knowledge is because we're not changing the individual components where we are creating a project that helps you deploy everything as a package. So you mentioned like, uh, how do you sleep at night? Well, Knowing that whenever I deploy Cassandra in my Kubernetes environment with all my special stuff, 
I don't use Prometheus. I use something else or I use New Relic or Datadog. Knowing that it, it deploys and it'll be fine, pretty critical. But how do we gather that knowledge? And right now, what we're doing is we're using Helm charts to deploy things. And Helm charts are like the old package management, you know, like a, like the APT packages, apt or deb packages, yum and RPMs. This is not a new concept, but if you think of Kubernetes like an operating system, infrastructure operating system, uh, Helm is like the installer for that. The combinations of things, like how I back up my data, how I maintain it, and thinking about expanding that. All right, there's other concepts in there. Like a really important one is how do I do networking? Knowing that if I'm going to connect two clusters together, how do I know I get reliable networking that's secure? And the worst thing that we could have in our community of users is that people start building these one-off implementations and never share how they do it. And that's what Kate Sandra is there for is, I did this, I want to share it. And how does the sharing work? Is there an artifact? Well, there's a couple of ways that it happens. First of all, like I mentioned, there's a, there is an artifact with the Helm chart and you can make modifications to the, to the Helm chart, but you can also add components into the Kate Sander project. And there's different operators that work together, um, but the Helm chart is the main way we're doing it right now. And so when you say Helm install Kate Sander cluster, you get all of the things that you need and you can define it. There's some declarative parts of it, like, oh, I don't need backups. <laughs> Maybe you're just, I hope you're just doing that in dev. There's certain, I wanna run, I wanna run some process in a different way. That's fine. but. Right now, it's just the word Helm install, and you should be able to get what you need. So the institutional knowledge then is more like infrastructure as code, right? You can put in your opinion, your point of view, contribute it, share it, and it'll be part of what you're doing under your Helm 3 you know, installation. Is that right? Yeah, I think I, that's a good way to characterize it. And when when we start moving away from Helm into other ways of deploying, it'll be the same concept, though. Here's a, a selection of things that are what's the best practice, right? And mm -hmm. this is the best practice in code. And if it doesn't work for you, I think that's the feedback mechanism is if it, there is some concept that didn't work, like, I, oh, I don't use this storage paradigm. I use something very different. Well, it gives you an opportunity to feed that back. Let's pop out a couple of layers of abstraction, right? That sounds like a pattern that pretty much any stateful technology could use on Kubernetes, could deploy through a Helm chart, could represent institutional knowledge as infrastructure and code, could have a few different points of view. How do you think that this pattern is going to shift in 2021, right? Is that going to you know, make it a lot easier for open source data infrastructure? Um, where do you think that's going to connect cloud and OSS? One of the best interactions I had on this, it just it kind of clicked for me. There's the latest Shiny podcast. I was on that. And Rob, the guy that was that I was talking with, um, he just all of a sudden just stopped everything. And he's like, this is my Nirvana. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, this is like installing things in Windows. We're finally getting to this point with all of my infrastructure. It, we're here. And he was just super excited about that. And I'm just thinking about the bits, you know, like, oh, here, we can run repairs or, you know, we can do things that are inside of Cassandra. But he's really thinking the big picture. And I, I think that's the 2021 where the, the light bulbs start to click and people start seeing it like, oh, de deploying these things that I need to run my application. You know, it's like double clicking on an installer file, like running like Chrome on my desktop or something. 
And I just really like, wow, what is that going to create in 2021 when people just feel like everything is that way? So you may have been digging a new groove with the particular use case of Cassandra that represents what people are going to be able to do with distributed infrastructure using Helm charts is almost a KPM. It's almost like a Kubernetes package manager that you could have a, a consistent installation process across a distributed infrastructure for things that want to be distributed, like distributed databases. Yeah. And it takes that point of view where you just like, wow, that was a pretty much a quantum shift in my brain. Like, whoa, here I was hyper-focused, but now I, I think this is kind of, a, like I said, a, a dream realized is where we don't have to make a lot of putting a lot of ceremony around the database. That's hard. It's integrated into a total package. And when people are thinking of what they're going to deploy next and quickly, they're thinking, here's all the parts. I can do this today. Or I, I can finish this project in a couple of weeks and move quickly. And I have all the assurances. I feel very assured that all these things are coming together and they will work for me in the future, not trading things off. I'm not going to get ruined in the three weeks whenever it scales out and I can't keep up with it. And that's really cool to see. And, and when I see the bigger picture like that from somebody else, it's just eye-opening. We're coming to the end of our time. So I'd like to ask everybody on the show to offer one resource or piece of advice that you'd give to anybody who was interested in what you've been talking about. One piece of advice. I. I really think that everybody that like, if you're especially someone in infrastructure or someone like me, who maybe has a deeper background as being a DBA or even in, in like database development, today's the day, go learn how to run Kubernetes from a command line, learn how to use kubectl, install it, run it, deploy something simple. You may not do that in the, you know, in the future, you probably use a service to deploy your Kubernetes, but today's the day to understand how it works. Because that train is coming and it's going to be great, but don't get left behind. Yeah, so go grab uh, Kelsey Hightower's Kubernetes the hard way. <laughs> if you're feeling like that, sure. <laughs> yeah, and that's a great one. What folks might, might not know is that uh, uh, Patrick runs his house on Kubernetes. No joke. Uh, definitely ask him questions, maybe ping him on Twitter. Patrick, it's been a pleasure. Really appreciate you spending the time on the podcast. From everybody at Open Source Data to everybody who's listening, we wish you peace, happiness, and good health through the holiday season. And we wish you a fantastic 2021. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sam. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Open Source Data Podcast, hosted by Datastax's Chief Strategy Officer, Sam Ramji. We're privileged and excited to feature many more guests who will share their perspectives on the future of software, so please stay tuned. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the series to be notified when a new conversation is released, and feel free to drop us any questions or feedback at opensourcedata at datastacks.com.